Welcome to the Reproject Podcast channel. Our mission is to rethink, reskill, redesign the future of work for social scientists. Hi everyone, my name is Maria Jose Alvarez and I am the Chief Outreach Manager at the Reproject, a peer mentorship and career advice community for social scientists. This podcast is part of the Reproject's collaboration with the Women in International Affairs Network, a digital platform and lifestyle brand connecting women with resources, advice, and opportunities in international affairs. Through this collaboration, we seek to explore the unique experiences of women in the aid and development sectors, specifically how they have been molded by their gender and intersectionality. Welcome to part two of this two-part podcast. Check out the link below for the first part in case you missed it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, with us today, we have C.N. Jones. Cian is a lawyer and established leader with over 10 years experience in both the public and private sector in strategic planning, evidence-based policy analysis and development, change management, stakeholder engagement, leadership development and coaching, management of complex projects, staff teams and budgets in the UK and internationally. She has six years experience working on global youth development, SRH, early childhood development and gender equality policy. She is the former country director of Lively Minds, a British award-winning early childhood development charity supported by DFID, USAID, Grand Challenges Canada, and the Global Innovation Fund. She is also the founder of Women in Leadership, a grassroots NGO, and Grand Challenges Canada Stars and Global Health Award winner. Finally, she is an independent consultant to the not-for-profit sector on strategic planning, capacity building of international teams, and scale-up in digital strategies, as well as a mentor to young entrepreneurs from low- and middle-income countries, with the Sherry Blair Foundation. So, Cian, if there's anything you would like to say or add, um, please go ahead. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, that's been wonderful. Um, I don't have too much to add. I think you covered everything that I'm working on, I have been working on. I'm really pleased to have been invited onto this podcast, and I'm excited to share with you a little bit about what I've been doing and hopefully inspire more young women to explore a career in the international development sector, if that's possible. Perfect, Tian. Thank you for being here once again. We're going to move on to, I think, more experience-specific questions. So these questions will, you know, talk more about your experience in the sector and the work you have done. Yep. So you said that you started out as a family lawyer, but you have also worked in the area of early childhood development in both Ghana and Uganda. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how did intersectionality play into your interventions for early childhood development while there? And mm -hmm. more specifically, what are the main factors, you know, social, political identity that you consider when working with deprived children in this case? Part of my work in Uganda, I was a country director of a early childhood development charity. And as part of that, I was on something called the ECD working group um, in Uganda. And something that we were doing was looking at the National Integrated Early Childhood Development Policy with a number of actors in Uganda and international actors. And we were looking at how can we make early childhood development accessible for everyone across the country, which again is a very one-size-fits-all approach, which was very difficult for me at the time. And I was advocating for a community-based approach that really sort of brought the community into early childhood development and 
empowered rural communities and empowered rural women to be able to play educational games with their children, to develop their own child, essentially. Because one of the issues that was then, and I think there still is now, is that a lot of women who are in perhaps very rural communities, they may be subsistence farmers, they're not able to put their children into nursery. Either the nursery is unaffordable or the nursery is too far away. So some of these young children are not receiving the educational inputs they should be getting at a very young age. And on this ECD working group, we were discussing the early childhood development policy. And it was quite interesting because there was a real lack of intersectional approach as to how we could reach particular children. There was this very one-size-fits-all approach. Let's create early childhood development centres around the country and children can just go to those. And this was a very flawed approach because obviously if you are a child who's in a very rural community where it takes quite some time to get to town, you're very unlikely to be able to access these spaces. You're very unlikely for your parents to have money to be able to pay for these spaces, even if it were close to you. So it was interesting to be on that working group and to have such large actors, international organisations, all advocating for this sort of one-size-fits-all approach and just not looking at how children from less well-off backgrounds, marginalised communities, would just not access this support. So yeah, I spent a year and a half, this project was ongoing for, really sort of advocating for that community-based approach, advocating for us to create programmes so that children who are from marginalised groups, who are socially excluded, essentially, would actually be able to access this educational support. At the end of that experience, we did have some amendments to the policy which included community-based approaches in line with what the organisation I was working with was trying to advocate for, and we were really pleased to see that. But it was interesting at that level, and it was a very sort of high-level working group, that no one was thinking about those children. No one was actually looking at the most, the poorest children in the regions and how they were going to access support and I think yeah it's, it's quite interesting that that discussion was not being had unless you had organizations coming in and really advocating for it. That's incredible I would like to learn more about that and I'm sure many other people would if you want to share a little bit more about this project if it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what else can I say about it I think this particular project we were working on I think the great things about it were one the making the educational games I think that was really really important um two so what we did is we trained mothers for in local villages how to make educational games how to play those games and then we set up play schemes local based play schemes where the women could play the games with the children in the local area and it was a play scheme that would run a few times a week the women would take their children along, they would volunteer at the play scheme, play the games with the children, and in that way we knew the children were receiving the educational inputs that they needed. But at the same time, another great output of that particular project was the fact that women were in the driving seat of the development. 
they were the ones who were delivering the educational games to the children. They were the ones making the games. They were the ones volunteering. They were really, really involved. And I think that's why it became sustainable. And also the women enjoyed going to the play schemes. They were meeting with women in the village. They would meet a certain number of times per week. It was almost a social activity. So instead of as I said, creating these ECD centres that just seem like another brick-built classroom elsewhere to drop children off to. This was a very community-based approach that enabled women to feel part of it. Men were even part of the programme too. And yeah, definitely a much more sustainable approach to ensuring that the children were actually receiving the educational inputs they needed. Thank you so much. Just to close on this question, I think that that's especially important to also shed light on how local leadership does play a part in the success of policy, you know, and I think that this is the perfect example on so many levels and how women are a part of this leadership. An absolutely incredible um, project that you did. Thank you, Sian. Um, I think we're going to move on to the next question. So this one says, you have considerable experience providing support for victims of domestic abuse in the UK. Because domestic abuse experiences can be especially heavy, what self-care advice would you give to others working on similar topics in the sector? Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, very topical now. The rate of gender-based violence, and in particular domestic violence and partner violence, has really gone up during the pandemic. And others have actually described domestic abuse, domestic violence, um, as almost a silent pandemic, because it's just going on and it's going on globally. And as someone who's worked in the field, I know that it can be really stressful. I've worked as um, an independent domestic violence advocate, and I've worked as a family solicitor. And in both spheres, you are working with women who are struggling, but they do want to escape domestic abuse. They don't necessarily know where to turn. So it can be a very stressful situation for the woman and for the women who are working in the sector trying to support these women. And I say women because there are so many of us who are working in the domestic violence and the gender-based violence sector. So I came up with three pointers here. And the first one I would say is take time to let your brain rest. And I say that because I know that when you're working in a very fast-paced, stressful environment, that sometimes you don't give yourself that time to breathe or that time to rest. And I've had large caseloads before and didn't necessarily take downtime, and it has impacted me. And what I do now and what I have done for the last 10 years now is I meditate every day in the morning. It's part of my little morning routine. I meditate in the morning just to sort of clear my mind. And if I want to, I meditate in the evening just to sort of clear my mind again before sleeping. And I think that that's really good for your own self-care, giving yourself that time to just be still, as it were. Another thing that I would suggest would be separating work and your life, which is so difficult, I know, for so many of us who are working from home. But if you can just find separate spaces, perhaps, if it's possible, if you do have a separate space, perhaps if you don't have to work in your room, if you can work somewhere else, do that. So you separate those spaces and try to have defined work times which again, I think is very difficult when you're working in sort of fast paced environments to have those defined hours. But if you don't have defined hours, 
your work seeps into your personal life and you don't have those boundaries, which then will really drain you. So if you can do that, that's amazing. And then finally, I would say, let your supervisors know if you're burned out, alert them. If you have too many cases, if you're working on something and you're feeling overwhelmed, it's really important just to let people know because I think often we work really, really hard and we get stressed out and we don't actually tell anyone and we just hope that someone will notice. And people don't notice because they're perhaps stressed out too. They're perhaps overworked as well. And particularly in the sort of domestic violence sector, a lot of us are overworked. Organisations are understaffed, underfunded. So if you are in that space and if you do need some respite, if you are overwhelmed, I would say it's really important to reach out to your supervisors, reach out to the organisation and say, look, I am overwhelmed at the moment and see what can happen. See if there's space for you to take on less, see if there's some downtime so that you do not burn out. Because when you're working in that kind of sector, when you're working with maybe high risk victims or women who really need support, you can't be burnt out because you are the person that is trying to support those women. So you need to take time for yourself, you need to focus on your own self care so that you can give back to the women that really need it. I agree with that completely. Thank you for sharing that. The next question is different in topic. So it says, you have worked to promote Ugandan women's inclusion in educational health services and entrepreneurial spaces. What barriers have you faced as a foreigner in doing so? And has being a woman helped to ease these frictions, if any? Finally, the last part of the question is, what advice would you give young female professionals seeking to work abroad in similar fields. This relates a little bit to the other question about entry level, but if you can speak to it a little more, that would be great. So my work in terms of sort of women's inclusion, health, education, etc., has been through the organization that I founded, Women Leadership Will Uganda in 2014. When I first arrived in Uganda, I think what's quite interesting is First of all, I didn't appear to be a foreigner. Some of my family are from Sierra Leone. And when I was in Uganda, a lot of people that I worked with thought I was Ugandan. So that was quite good for me at the time when I first arrived. But as people spoke to me, I understood I was from England, there may have been some barriers that came up later on. I think that one of the barriers that I faced, perhaps sort of moving into working in villages in a completely different cultural context, was, of course, understanding the cultural norms in that context and it being quite different cultural norms that I was used to and something that was quite interesting when I arrived in Uganda as a volunteer and it was actually it was quite an intense program that we had when we first volunteered and we had training for about two weeks and that those two weeks of training included discussions on cultural norms, social structures in Uganda as well, and really gave us a better understanding. I think that helped to set me up so I knew exactly what I should be doing in the country and how I should approach conversations in the community and things like that. And something else that I did just to make sure that I was being culturally sensitive, culturally aware, was speaking to colleagues. When I first volunteered in Uganda, I had a Ugandan counterpart that I worked with. And I spoke to my colleagues about, okay, so how are meetings arranged in Uganda? How should I address this person? Things like that. Just making sure that I was being culturally sensitive and culturally aware. 
and also making sure that I started to understand the context. So speaking to people on the ground and understand the context that we would be working in. So for anyone who's moving into a profession and thinking about working abroad, I would say that it's really important not only to sort of read up on the culture and what's going on in the country and the politics before you get there, but also speak to people on the ground and ensure that you get some awareness. Make sure you understand what's going on in the culture when you get there. Make sure that you're being culturally sensitive I found my organisation, we've had a number of people who have interned with our organisation and we always make sure that we have a cultural awareness training with our interns to make sure that when they're going into the community, they are coming across in the right way and that they're being respectful. So I think it's really, really important if you can get on the ground and make sure that you are being culturally aware, culturally sensitive that is probably the most important piece of advice that I can give anyone because once you are on the ground and you are working in that way and people gain that level of respect for you for the fact that you have made sure that you understand what's going on in the community that you are perhaps even trying to learn maybe the local language having the ability to actually greet people in the local language it showed that you were aware of the culture it showed that you had respect for the culture and in that way you were respected as well so I think it opens so many doors when you show that you've taken the time to really understand what's going on and to show that you want to be the type of person and the type of person who's working in development who actually cares about people on the ground and who actually cares about cultural sensitivity Thank you. Yeah, that's super important. And I think we're all taking something away from this podcast. I think we're all learning not only about the international development sector, but also just how to be in life in general. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example as well of myself, because I'm not someone who has never done anything that I've thought, oh, actually, this is how I should do it properly. But we were, this something that was not in our training was that when we were in the, the village that we were working in, I wasn't aware that it was culturally acceptable and very normal for you to greet most people that you see, when I say most people, nearly all people that you see, as you move through the village. And that would mean saying hello to complete strangers. And if you hadn't said hello, then it was regarded as very, very rude. And that's completely different to living in London. So because obviously if you've worked in London or from London, you know that if someone greets you and you have no idea who they are, that's rather odd. Yeah. And that was something that I had to learn from the interactions with my counterparts in Uganda. Yeah, completely. So we're on our last question. This one reads, in your opinion, as a successful lawyer and a woman, how can we make sure that the policies that international organizations implement align as closely with the struggles people are living on the ground. And I had written a little aside that said, especially for women and SRH, domestic violence education, which are the areas that you have most experience in? Yeah, absolutely. I think the gaps in policy, when you look at policies relating to women, SRH, domestic violence education, when you look at the policies, the gaps that start to form I believe are as a result of not having conversations with the people on the ground and understanding their experiences. So I would say one of the first things that needs to happen is that we need to start asking questions. And I think perhaps we think that we do ask questions, but I don't think that 
overall we're asking enough questions and we're probably not asking the right people. So we need to ask the people on the ground, the people that the projects are supposed to be benefiting, what their experiences are and how can we work to support them regarding these experiences. To give an example, when I founded Women in Leadership in 2014, we carried out a needs assessment of the community that we wanted to work in. And we essentially asked the women and the girls, what challenges are you experiencing in your communities? And there was a resounding issues. Number one was teenage pregnancy and lack of reproductive health services. Another one was education and illiteracy. Another one was lack of access to in income generating opportunities and access to work. Once we had asked those questions, we then worked with the women and girls in these focus groups to ascertain how we could best support them in these challenges. And when we did that, we were able to collaborate with the community and come up with programs that really address their needs. And this takes time. If we took the time to really do these needs assessments and really understand what's going on on the ground and how we can properly have the impact we want, we would then see a much greater impact and we would see women and girls receiving the support that they actually need. So these kind of needs assessments, I feel like they should be completed for laws, for policies that actually affect women's lives. And I can give you an example. In Uganda, there is a Domestic Violence Act. And that act specifically outlines four service providers, I'll call them, who should support women if they are victims of domestic abuse. And those service providers include local council courts, police, nurses, and magistrates courts. And the idea or the notion is that these service providers know what they're supposed to be doing, are aware of the law, and will support these women. Now, that law was created at a national level. And it's expected to trickle down and affect the lives of women across the whole country. However, I found in research I've conducted that women in rural communities are not receiving that support. They're not being supported by the local council courts. They're not being supported by the police. They're not being supported by health services when they're victims of domestic abuse. And they're not even reaching um, to the stage of magistrates' courts because they can't afford them. So there are so many barriers that these women are facing. However, that's not addressed by the Domestic Violence Act. And one reason I would say that is, is because nobody asked them. They were not consulted. And that's not just in Uganda, that's, it's so universal. I've worked as a family solicitor in the UK and the firm that I was working with worked in legal aid. So legal aid is provided for people who do not have the means to pay for court, but only in certain circumstances. And there are a number of gaps in legal aid provision, which really affect the lives of women. So one of those gaps is that women who might require legal aid support, which would then enable them to have a solicitor representing them for free, they're unable to access that legal aid support if they have capital in the home that they're currently living in. So perhaps they're married, their husband is abusing them, they have some capital in their home, but they're not working. 
those women are unable to receive legal aid. And what that means in practice is that those women, if they were to go to court in order to protect themselves from domestic abuse, they would not be eligible to have a solicitor present unless they paid for it. And these women aren't able to pay for it. So then they would have to attend court. Their partner, their husband, would be able to attend court and perhaps have a solicitor there. The woman would then have to be in court on her own, unrepresented, whilst her husband's solicitor questions her. Now, this is a huge gap in legal aid. And my thinking, and I, it's not just my thinking, it's the thinking of quite a few people in the space, is that no one discussed these policies and the provision of legal aid with the women who are affected by legal aid and its provision. And if they had spoken to these women, those women would have said, and the same as those women who work in organisations that protect women from domestic abuse, they all would have resoundingly said, you cannot put women in a position whereby they're in court on their own without a solicitor and their husband is in court against them with a solicitor. That's completely unconscionable. So I feel like this is something that it's very universal. We need to ensure that we are speaking to the people who are experiencing the problem. And we need to work with them to address the solution. And we also need to look at who are making policies, whether it be at an international level, national, regional level, who are making the policies? Are they reflective of the people who are actually on the ground experiencing the problems? Have they been consulted? And then we will actually move in a direction of being able to create projects, create programs, policies and laws that actually address the issues. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, what you mentioned is a great example. And sadly, it's not the only example of when policies are not reflective of the needs of the people they concern. Mm -hmm. You know, let's hope that there is a positive change in the sector to recognize that discrepancy so that things like these don't happen and that there are no loopholes, you know, for people who are the perpetrators in this case or in any other situation when where you're allowing bad behavior to continue just because people have neglected researching appropriately for these policies. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really starts with ensuring you have the right people at the table at the outset to really iron out what's going on and how to address these issues. Yes, exactly. Well, Sian, thank you so much for joining us today and for having this wonderful conversation with me. It's be for myself and for our future listeners that, you know, it's been a very enjoyable and resourceful podcast. So thank you so much for joining and for all your wonderful advice and for your anecdotes, you know, in the sector. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. And I, I hope that it's been helpful. Um, I hope people can take anything from it. And if there are any sort of people who want to move into the sector and young women who want to move into the sector, do feel free to reach out to me um, on LinkedIn. Um, please feel free to reach out and I'll answer any questions that you have and point you in the direction of anyone else who could support you. I, I'm, I'm all about collaboration and I'm all about women supporting women and women empowering women as much as we possibly can. So reach out if you need support. I'm on LinkedIn, Sian Jones. Just message me. Thank you so much, Sian. Brilliant. Thanks, Maria. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this podcast. 
Don't forget to follow us at The Reproject on LinkedIn and find out more about WIAN at WIA Network and WIA Network.com. Thank you.